here to speak this morning. Great. Thank you, Jerry. Yes, man. Thank you. <clears throat> well, uh, we got a live crowd today, don't we? I love the way you were cheering for those lyrics earlier. The, the truth of that message just really spoke to your heart there, didn't it? Uh, I couldn't hear it either. But anyway, you saw your friends on the screen. That's good. I got to tell you, I love this place. I, I loved it when I was here as a student. Of course, back then I, I used head and shoulders. Now it's just mop and glow and hit the road, you know, and there's not much to it. But uh, I, I was telling Johnny, it's hard to be vain when you're bald. You just kind of give up on that. You just go for broke. But uh, I loved Liberty back in the days when I served here as a student body president and traveled and sang on behalf of the school. I loved being on staff, and I absolutely loved being back and uh, the privilege of reinvesting what God has put into my life into your lives. A couple weeks ago, as I led our first ever prayer summit up at Eagle Irie, uh, which was a wonderful time, I, I realized that I am doing now what I wished others had done for me when I was a student, and I'm having the joy of teaching you how to pray by praying with you and sending you out from here in the power of the Spirit of God. And today, uh, Pastor Jonathan asked me to speak on prayer. We've been doing a series called The Life of a Champion. And he said, obviously, a champion has to be a person of prayer. And so today, we are talking about that. That's not the only thing I ever talk about. Obviously, as a pastor for many years, I taught through books of the Bible. Uh, but today, I want to talk to you about the enduring motivation to pray as we speak about the heart of a champion. And I want to begin by reading a text from the New Testament found in the book of Revelation. We're going to read it and then come back to it at the end of the message here in just a few moments. It's a familiar text. And it's one about a group of Christians who had lost their spiritual passion. They had lost their commitment to the centrality of Christ in their lives and in their midst. And as you're listening, some of you have perhaps already guessed, it is a description of the church of Laodicea found in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. Let me read it briefly if I could. It says this, and to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write these things, says the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of crea the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, naked, blind, and poor. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. And many of us know this verse so well. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Would you pray with me again just for a moment? Father, right now, we pray that you would arrest our attention not to a speaker, not to a message, but to the voice of the living Christ as he speaks to our hearts today from his word and for his glory and for our good. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The other night I was here for the Wednesday evening communion service. What a wonderful service that was. And I was walking up there along the walkway, and a group of, of girls walked by me, some students, and I heard one of them say, hey, that's the prayer guy. Uh, this past Sunday, I was in the back room with Pastor Jonathan, and they brought a, a young man named Daniel in. If you were at Thomas Road, he was involved in a tragic accident. God has sustained his life, and we wanted to pray for him. 
And so Jonathan said, Dr. Graham, would you pray for him? And then Daniel, would you pray for him? You're the prayer guy. Well, I want to open with a confession today. I'm really not the prayer guy. In fact, I am not a natural prayer guy at all. Uh, Prayer is really depending on God, isn't it? And I would confess to you that I have a fiercely independent personality. In fact, my friends would tell you that I could be stranded on a desert island and never realize I'm the only one there for an entire week. I mean, I'd just be going around, you know, playing with the, uh, the coconuts, building huts, going fishing, and suddenly realize, hey, where is everybody? And the reality is it is not natural for me to pray. I've met some of those prayer guys and gals. Maybe you're rooming with one, and I'm sorry for that if you are. But uh, they, they, they're real pious and, and kind of contemplative. They look like they ought to be wearing robes and swinging incense, and they kind of drip Shekinah juice, you know, everywhere they go, and uh, that's not me. But the reality is that over the years, God has taught me about prayer and the need to learn to pray, and so today I do want to talk to you a little bit about the reality of prayer. I think we all know by way of introduction that we should pray. How many of you know I'm supposed to pray? Anybody not get that message? I think everybody does. We know that we should pray. Some of us know how to pray. Some of us struggle in prayer. As I said a moment ago, and I say it often, the only way to learn to pray is by praying. When I was in seminary, uh, Dr. Dave Early, who wasn't a doctor back then, but Dr. Dave Early, who was a good friend of mine, he teaches here, Harry Walls, who pastors uh, Shades Mountain Church in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, and several others of us would go to a room every weekday morning at 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. trying to learn how to pray because we didn't know how. We figured if the milkman can show up at 5.30, we can show up at 6 and we're going to learn to pray. Obviously, here on campus, under Pastor Dwayne's leadership, and many of you who are involved in the dorms, there are lots of opportunities to learn to pray. We're going to be introducing you here in the weeks to come to a, a tool called the 2959, and it's a guide to spending 30 minutes a day in prayer. You see a copy of it there, and we want to help you learn to pray. We also want to invite you as students to engage with us in 50 days of unbroken prayer. And every Sunday from midnight to midnight, we're going to need your help around 2 a.m., 3 a.m., no guy and girls by themselves, obviously, but uh, to fill that room. And every Sunday, midnight to midnight, we're asking you to help Thomas Road to pray along with churches in this city for 50 days total. And that's how you learn. You just do it. It's the Nike philosophy of prayer. But the reality is we know that we should pray. Some of us know how to pray, but here's what I want to talk about. I want to talk to you about why you should pray, why you should pray. I remember when I was a student, a guy named Charles Tremendous Jones came to Liberty. You might remember him, Dr. Towns and and, uh, Chancellor Falwell. And he said this, you can tell someone how to do something, and they'll do it for a while. But when you tell them why they're doing it, it will take a brick wall to stop them. It was the philosopher Nietzsche who said it this way, He who has a why to live can bear with almost any how. I want to talk to you about why we pray. I was leading a staff training day about a year and a half ago at Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California with the staff there. And after it was over, the senior pastor, John MacArthur, some of you know him from the radio, he came up to me and he said, Daniel, where did you get this prayer deal? You know, why are you so passionate about this? He says, it is something about the way you were raised. And I said, I don't really know. But it made me begin to think, why is it that God has put in me this motivation, not necessarily a skill, but a motivation to learn? And today I want to talk to you about the why of prayer. 
I want to give you five biblical motivations, very briefly, for a life of enduring prayer, and I hope you write them down. Here's the first one, and this one has rocked my world in the last 25, 30 years, and it is this, the priority of spiritual leadership as it's presented in the Scripture, the priorities of spiritual leadership. I was sitting with a a group of leaders from the National Prayer Committee at a seminar about a year and a half ago as well. And we were talking about what we could do together that might be the most strategic initiative in our country to help the church grow in the area of prayer. And we all agreed unanimously that the most important thing we could do somehow would be to encourage prayer in the seminaries and colleges as being vital to what it means to be a pastor. And as I have gone through my own life, I recognize that uh, so many times in colleges and seminaries, prayer is not on the agenda of training. We assume people know how to do it. Uh, We have a wonderful prayer class in our seminary. This fall, I'm starting a prayer class at the undergraduate level. But in reality, I left Liberty and I learned all kinds of theology, Armardiology, soteriology, pneumatology, eschatology, all the ologies, isms, schisms, and spasms of biblical understanding, but never had a single class on prayer. We make the assumption that pastors know how to pray. We make the assumption that they know how to lead people in prayer. We make the assumption that they know how to create a culture of prayer in the local church, but I'll tell you honestly, they don't. And we are passionate here at Liberty about teaching them to do so in the dorms, in the classroom, in the vital experiences of prayer. Two verses rocked my world on this issue. The first one was found in Acts chapter 6. I preach about it often. We won't talk about it uh, extensively. But it was a leadership crisis in the early church where they had to make some hard choices. Dr. Fall, you know you can't do everything. You can't please everybody. Dr. Towns, we all know that. Uh, Pastor Dwayne, you've got to choose. And in that text, they said very clearly, you see the passage on the, on the screen, that we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And then you find men that we can appoint over the, the duties of the church. Three priorities, prayer, the Word, and delegation. But it's also true in the Old Testament. Do you remember the story when uh, Moses was overwhelmed? He was judging too many people, and his father-in-law Jethro came to him and said, you got to stop this, Moses. You're going to wear yourself out. What advice did Jethro give to Moses? If I were to ask you, most of you would say it was to delegate, to find other judges. But if you look at the text, he actually gave him three points of advice. I want you to see it on the screen. He says, I will give you counsel, and God will be with you, number one, You see it there? Stand before God and the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God. That's what? That's prayer. Secondly, teach them the statutes of the laws. And then thirdly, select from among the people those who can judge. Same three priorities. Listen, prayer, the word, and delegation. In that order, in both testaments as it relates to leadership. One of the great motivations in my life is recognizing that biblically, the first priority, according to these texts, is prayer. That motivates me to try to be that kind of a leader. Let me give you a multiple choice quiz, all right? Two verses from the New Testament, one of which is a time when Jesus talked about what he wanted us to be characterized by. My house shall be a house of blank. The other one was when Paul was telling Timothy how to organize the church. 
And he said, the first thing I want you to do is blank. So here are our options. Look at it on the screen. The first option, as you see, is programs. The second one, performances. The third one, preaching. And the last one, prayer. In both instances, what's the right answer? Tell me. Prayer. Jesus says, my house should be a house, not a preaching programs or performances. All those are fine and good, but first of all, prayer. Paul says to Timothy, I first of all want the church to be not, again, preaching programs or performances, but prayer. Now, that is not to make the Word of God secondary. In fact, I have said so often that the uh, most important thing about a church is what they do with this book. That is the single most important thing about any church. But I will tell you this as well. Preaching without the power of prayer becomes what Spurgeon calls simply the lifting of a dead man's arms or the raising of the eyelid of a blind eye. The fact of the matter is that our preaching must be energized by the supernatural. Otherwise, all it is is the powerless pablum of human personality and intelligence. That's why prayer is so vital. The second motivation is the the, uh, persuasion of New Testament Christianity. And I'll just say this briefly. As I have gone through my own journey, I've looked at the early church, and what was very obvious is prayer was front and center. The church was started in 10 days of prayer. Some of us think a three-day prayer summit's a lot. That's just kind of a third of the pie. 10 days of prayer. As soon as the church was launched, they immediately went back to the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and what? And prayer. When they faced persecution, they gathered and they prayed. When Peter was in jail, they gathered and they prayed. When God wanted to launch the missionary movement in Acts chapter 13, the book of Antioch, or the the church of Antioch, they did what? They prayed. It was praying all the time because they knew Christ. They knew his power. They knew that what human intelligence and talent could not accomplish, the power of the Spirit of God through prayer would accomplish. That motivates me to pray. You know, today we have all kinds of tools, and sometimes they become substitutes for the power of God. And I'm not against the tools, by the way. The church I pastored in Minnesota, uh, we had a 4,500-seat auditorium. We had air conditioning. We had running water, toilets. We were high-tech. We had it all. But there is a difference between using those tools and depending on those tools. And the acid test of which one we are doing is the prayer level of our lives and the prayer levels of our churches. And God has used that truth as I look at the early church to motivate me. And I've come to realize that that in the flesh, my strengths become my weaknesses. But in the spirit, my weaknesses become my strengths. Did you understand that? In the flesh, my strengths become my weaknesses because I rely on them. But in the spirit, my weaknesses become my strengths because through prayer, I invite the power of God to do what only God can do in my life. The third motivator is this, the pattern of the prayer life of Jesus Christ. If there are no other motivations, this one would motivate each and every one of us every day of our lives. And we won't take time to look at all the texts, but we know before he started his ministry, Jesus spent how long in the wilderness? Forty days. Moses did the same thing. In fact, if I were king for the day, I would require every seminary graduate to spend 40 days in the wilderness before he starts his ministry. That would really teach us to pray, wouldn't it, Dr. Towns? 40 days. Before selecting leaders, he prayed how much? All night long. 
The Bible says in Mark 1.35, he went away a great while before the day and he prayed. He was always going into the wilderness. He was constantly withdrawing. He took his disciples up to a mount for a prayer meeting and we call it the transfiguration experience. It is the life of Jesus that should motivate us to pray. Now, I don't want to mess with your Christology or the finer points of the hypostatic union here, but I want you to catch this. There is a sense in which Jesus was the only one who ever walked the earth who didn't need to pray but did to help those of us who, don't, who do need to pray but don't learn how to do it. Did you catch that? He, he, in a sense, didn't need to pray but did to help those of us who do need to pray but don't learn how to do it. Now, what do you mean, Daniel? Well, he was fully God, and as fully God, he was in constant communion and intimacy with his Father. But as fully man, he demonstrated what it meant to depend on God. And men and women, if Jesus needed to pray like that, how many of you think, I need to pray a little more than he did? Yeah, absolutely. And so it is the prayer life of Jesus that motivates us. Number four, it is a passion for an eternally significant life that motivates us to pray, the passion for an eternally significant life. Now, we've heard it so often, we almost miss the power of it. Dr. Falwell said it time and time and time again, nothing of what? Of eternal significance is ever accomplished apart from prayer. How much? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Now, what does that mean? That, that I quickly add a prayer, Lord, please help me in this, this mess I've made? No, it's a little more than that. But a real life of prayer brings eternal significance to our common existence. I like to define prayer this way, and you see it on the screen. Prayer is intimacy with God that leads to the fulfillment of his purposes accomplished by his power for his glory. Intimacy with God that leads to the fulfillment of his purposes accomplished by his power and for his glory. And that's what makes your life eternally significant. Men and women, don't ever forget this. The only scoreboard that counts is in heaven. Say that with me. The only scoreboard that counts is in heaven. You see, the Bible makes it very clear. The first shall be, what, last, and the last shall be first. Matthew 7 says there's going to be a lot of people show up and say, Lord, we knocked it out of the park for you. Did you see what we did? We preached and we healed and we did all these great works down on earth. Man, the scoreboard was over the top. Henderson paraphrased, of course, and Jesus says what? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, because I never, what? I never knew you. You see, it's easy for our ministry not to come out of our intimacy in fact, I say it this way, and I hope you'll listen carefully. Ministry that does not spring from intimacy is merely activity without the touch of eternity. Now, that doesn't mean God doesn't use us. You know, Balaam's donkey could preach the gospel and people would get saved, but Balaam's donkey wouldn't get an eternal reward. You understand that? And the reality is the scoreboard's in heaven, friends. And everything we do must spring from intimacy with God. Jesus says, abide in me and you will bear fruit. But so many times we get on the treadmill of activity and Christian service and ministry and organization and our ministry is not coming out of our intimacy and it becomes activity without the touch of eternity. Jim Cimbala says it this way, I don't want to stand before Christ someday and say, Lord, look what I did for you. 
He said, instead, I want to fall before his feet and say, Lord Jesus, thank you for what you did through me. And my friends, that motivates us to pray because that's where the touch of eternity and the reality of intimacy becomes the driving energy behind everything we do for Christ. You remember Martha and Mary? Martha had a service-based life. Mary had an intimacy-based life. And Jesus says, Mary, you've made the best choice, and it's the one that will not be taken away. And so that motivates me. Pastor Jonathan said it a few weeks ago. I said it uh, earlier this month when I was preaching that our greatest fear, catch this, should not be failure, but that we succeed in things that don't really matter. And I believe a life of prayer is the secret to a life that really matters in eternity. Finally, the last motivation for prayer is what I call the pursuit of the worthiness, neediness attitude, all right? The worthiness, neediness attitude. We have a lot of motives in prayer. I've prayed out of guilt. I've prayed out of obligation. I've prayed out of duty. I've prayed because I wanted God to, to bless my church. Sometimes I pray for revival, but what I've learned, and my friends say this will be on my tombstone someday, is this, that the only enduring motive for prayer is that God is worthy to be sought. Say that with me. The only enduring motive for prayer is that God is worthy to be sought. God is worthy, and guess what? I am needy. And therefore, I must pray. God is worthy, I am needy, and that motivates me to pray because I need God and he's worthy to be sought. Over the years, I've taken a lot of trips to the Brooklyn Tabernacle, Tuesday night prayer service. Any of you ever been there before? It's a life-changing experience. Thousands of people come every Tuesday night. And the first time I went, I'll never forget, I came back and was telling some of our leaders about it and how these people come and they pray on Tuesday nights and seek God and the Lord works marvelously. And one of my elders said to me, well, Daniel, of course they pray. I mean, they're all street people, you know, they're all broken, they're drug addicts and, and, and transvestites and, and homosexuals. And they went on this long litany of why these people prayed. And I thought about it for a moment. I said, you know, that's not really right. The biggest difference between the people in Brooklyn and us is that we are in deeper denial than they are. We need God. We need God. And that brings us finally to the text we began with this morning, the church of Laodicea. They had become lukewarm. They were not hot. They were not cold. They were just apathetic. And why? Because they said in their own mind, we are rich and increased with goods and we have need of nothing. We need nothing. We have all we need. We have wealth. We have clothing. Uh, we have, have uh, commerce. We have tools. And Jesus says, no, really, you're poor, wretched, miserable, naked, and blind. And Jesus said to them, I want you to buy from me gold refined with silver. You're wealthy, but I have something better for you. I want to give you white raiment. Did you know in Laodicea they were famous for producing black wool? And it was a clothing, exporting city. And he says, i got something better. I've got white clothing, my righteousness. He says, I have eye salve I would give you. In fact, Laodicea had a, a large medical community, and they were famous for powder that would be a medicine for the eyes. He said, here's what you think you have. Here's what I can offer you. He said, but the problem is you don't recognize your need 
And then he says that famous passage, Behold, I what? I stand at the door and knock. You remember the Flintstones? I used to love that opening line. Flintstones, meet the Flintstones. They're a, uh, what is it, a something-something family uh, from the town of Bedrock. You know how it goes. And finally it ends. We'll have a do time, a dab a do time. Sing it with you. We'll have a gay old time. I know it's not politically correct, but we'll sing it anyway, all right? Nonetheless, you remember that last scene? Fred was there, and he puts Dino outside. And then I think he goes in to get the milk bottle. And while he's getting the milk bottle, Dino goes back in. Fred goes out with a milk bottle, and Dino locks him out. And it ends with Fred knocking on the door going what? Wilma! Yeah, that's right. Now, you got that picture? Revelation 3. Jesus is knocking on the door of his own church. Church! Church, you've become so rich and increased with goods, you don't even need me anymore. I'm on the outside looking in. But the reality is that prayer recognizes how worthy Christ is. He says, I will come in and sup with you. That word sup literally refers to the main meal of the day in which you invite a guest. I want to come and be the guest of honor in your midst. I want to come and have you experience my power and my glory and my presence. But you've got to recognize how worthy I am and how needy you are. And as the great prayer writer Ole Hallisby said, prayer is simply opening the the door of your heart to the presence of Jesus. I love the way G. Campbell Morgan said it as he spoke of this particular passage He says, the only cure for lukewarmness is the readmission of the excluded Christ into our lives. The readmission of the excluded Christ into our lives. So why? Why do we pray? Is it it something in our DNA? Is it uh, being bald, you know? Is it it something in the family? No, it's all about knowing the motivation, the priorities of spiritual leadership, the persuasion of the early church, the pattern of Jesus, the passion for an eternally significant life, and finally, the pursuit of the worthiness, neediness attitude. He is worthy, and I am needy, and he invites me to a banquet table in which I can discover all the fullness of his life and sup with him and he with me. Would you bow with me this morning in a final moment of prayer? We're just going to sing a final course today. Young people, I believe that God has not only sent from this school people who have become world changers because they learned to pray, but I believe God is even right now developing in this school the hearts of young men and young women who know why, why they pray. And you will go out in the power of the Spirit and do great exploits for God. You will bear fruit in His name, not based upon a service mentality, but an intimacy mentality that leads to eternally significant impact. But today it ultimately comes down to this, Lord, You are worthy and I am needy. This morning I hope that You will make that Your cry, Your heart, Your passion. Lord, I open the door of my heart and I invite you again to be the guest of honor this day. 
I don't want to hear the voice of you knocking on a door that I've closed because I have become so self-sufficient. But I want to know the beauty and the wonder of your presence as the source and substance of all that I do. So Lord Jesus, I open that door. I cry out to you today and I ask you, teach me not just to pray, but teach me why I should pray. Let's just sing that chorus together. I need thee, oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come. stand and let's sing that again. Would you cry out to the Lord? I need thee, oh I need thee. Every hour I need thee. Oh bless me now my Savior. because you are worthy and we are needy, we will choose to pray. And finally, Lord, in this moment, we again recognize the very special need of Dr. Heinz and his family. And we pray that even now in that hospital room, the heart's door of his life and the life of his dear wife, Donna, would be wide open to your grace, your healing touch, and your mercy. And Lord, may we leave here expectantly seeing you do what only you can do in his life in our lives to touch the world with the power of the gospel for the glory of Christ in whose name we pray and everyone said amen. God bless you as you go. Thanks for being here today.